This is a special Share Encore production you can give at MyFaithRadio.com. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold. I will say that again, the warmest of welcomes. I'm so glad you're here with me today. We've got a guide talk uh, starting in just about 30 seconds. And that means we want your questions. I know you've been thinking about something you read in Scripture, or maybe you've had a discussion with a friend in the last week, and you think, I wonder what the power panel would think. And that would be a good time to send the question over right now. The text line is 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. And let me introduce my power panel today. I've got Pastor Tom Parrish, Jeff Verdorn, and uh, Agent 007 is with us today, Justin Jepson. Welcome, gentlemen. Good to be here, Bill. Good afternoon, Bill. Yeah. Hey, Bill. Just so you know, you guys all get a participation trophy today, which <laughs> amounts to absolutely nothing. <laughs> Just like all the other ones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Justin, nice to have you back That's on board. Great. So tell me what's going on in yeah. your household. Yeah. Hey, great to be back and missed you, brothers, and missed the... Uh, interacting with the listeners via their questions. Yeah, yeah. it's been a, a big week in our household. We we have uh, three kids, uh, five, three, and one, and our two oldest, our oldest son, uh, our oldest child, Bennett, our boy, is uh, started kindergarten this week, and our middle child, our daughter, Letty, started preschool. So um, it's kind of a whole new rhythm for us, and there's been a, a lot of mixture of emotions, um, and I've... <laughs> Definitely uh, had to trust the Lord in some fresh ways this week and uh, mm-hmm. just sending kids off. And uh, again, the mixture of excitement and fear and anxiety that comes along with that. But the Lord's continued to show himself faithful and uh, reveal himself to me in fresh ways uh, through my kids. Um, and even just through the emotions that I feel, how often he's directed my heart back to him to know how he feels about us and about me in particular as one of his kids. Mm, beautiful. Oh. Thank you for sharing that. I yeah, just had a uh, picture pop up on my iPhone of my son. He's now 27, has a child, another one on the way, and it was his first day uh-huh. of kindergarten mm. that popped wow. up on my iPhone. You know, one of those memories that showed up? And I can yeah. I can picture that day in my mind like it was just last week, and it still brings a little tear to my eye. Yeah, well, yeah. I may as well be honest. My two oldest grandsons are going to college now. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, it's a multi-generational panel here. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, my favorite thing about kindergarten was the naps. (laughs) The naps? Yeah. I don't know if they have those anymore. At least it's not on the schedule we got for our time. When you get to my age, there are lots of naps. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You're breaking my heart with this no nap thing. I don't like that. Really? I still remember the naps. I I do. Yeah, kindergarten, right? Naps. You bring your own little mat. Yeah, you brought your little mat. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So... (laughs) Justin, your kids are five, three, and one, correct? Correct. Correct. Yep. So, so uh, let, yeah, let's never go. Never dull moment. Yeah, yeah never dull. So let's go to the mm-hmm. other end of the age spectrum. Ninety-six-year-old uh, Queen died today. Yep. Queen Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's sad to, yeah. to see her go. She was an unusual monarch in the sense that she was pretty much the same person throughout her entire reign, and uh, people had many, many good things to say about her. Mm-hmm. And, she seemed to be kind, compassionate, but she took her role. It's interesting. Usually when you're that high in power, you get an ego with it and such an ego that everybody is there to serve you. She didn't behave that way. 
And uh, the prime ministers, others that worked with her, said that she was a real servant and she really wanted the best for England, uh, for the United Kingdom, and that she really gave her heart to the people. And I'm ex- pleased to hear that. I wish we had more people like that. Mm. You know, I have mm. not followed the monarchy over my life, but I've now watched The Crown, so I think I'm an expert now after watching <laughs> the TV show. Yeah. But, you know, one, <laughs> one of the things that I did when I was watching The Crown was I would Google to see what the, if the stories that they were portraying were accurate. And for the most part, they actually were. And sure. one that really caught my eye was when Billy Graham came to England and they showed that Queen Elizabeth was really enamored by him and his message. Remember, she's not only the queen of the state, she's also the head of the church uh, in England. And uh, she mm-hmm. plays that dual role. And they developed, I understand, a, quite a friendship over the course of, of their lives and uh, and appreciated that message. But my understanding is also that she, her speech when she took over as queen uh, what basically said, I am here for you. I'm a, your servant. However long my life is, I will serve England. And I've always felt that she did that. Mm. How long did she reign again? Or what was her? her 70 think, uh, years. 70, yeah. 70 years. Mm-hmm. That's incredible. Yeah. I mean, wow. Yeah, it's been a long time. And she's been on the throne literally since the day I was born. So mm. I'm, I'm very impressed. Yeah. Now, I will say that obviously we as Christians uh, follow the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, not any earthly king or queen or or anything else. So uh, maybe that's why I haven't followed this one. I mean, we, you know, we could actually start talking about some of the earthly authorities that God has established because Scripture makes it Mm -hmm. clear that God has established earthly authorities and that we Mm -hmm. should submit to that authority. But in the end, our true citizenship is in heaven. And uh, that is, we are ambassadors from heaven, and so we are to represent a foreign kingdom, and that kingdom is the kingdom of heaven. You know, we could spend the whole time just talking about that alone, because Mm -hmm. Christians have been put into a box in America. We're afraid to speak out in public. We're afraid to speak up at the school board. We're afraid to speak up politically, and we get ridiculed way too easily. And yet we serve the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, who is going to have the final say in everything and it's his voice that we need to bring. And so I encourage the congregation I serve and others, go to those school boards, go to those uh, meetings, government meetings, speak up. Don't be afraid to bring up the name of Jesus. You know, everybody else will bring up whatever they want and they don't apologize for it. Don't you apologize for Jesus. Go and speak the truth. Do it in love, but do it firmly and be there. Well, that was Tom Tom Parrish. And right now I'm warming my hands uh, right by him because he's just <laughs> he's radiating heat. Yeah. Yes, he's radiating heat. All right, here, I got lots of questions coming in. Should we take a couple? Let's do it. Before the break yeah. in four minutes. All right, let's do this. I'll take them in the order in which they're coming in. I love it. Uh, I like that too. What is marriage in God's definition? Do you need to be married in a church by a certain person? I asked because I was at a wedding in a backyard that was officiated by someone who was LGBT uh, with a flag around their neck that took a certific- uh, certification online to marry people. Or what about people who elope or just sign court papers or marry in their cultural context? Um, I wonder, are these couples married in God's eyes? What makes you married in God's eyes? Well, they're married. Let's put it that way. But whether you're married with a blessing from the Lord is another matter. Because the Lord established marriage, and he established it, and there are parameters to marriage. It's between a male and a female. It is to be for life. And Jesus is literally be like we just talk about the cord of three strands. He is to be the center of the whole thing. Now, 
there are people that have taken that on and turned it around. There are there are satanic groups, believe it or not, that will perform wedding ceremonies. It's still a, it's still a wedding. You're becoming one flesh. I mean, once that happens, but a lot of people do that without getting married too. The Bible talks about, but the reality is this: if you want a marriage with the blessings and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you need to have a marriage that honors Him and is done in a ceremony that gives Him the credit. Uh, but you can get married any way you want in this world, and people do it all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, there was no justice of the peace or a or courthouse or a marriage certificate uh, way back in Adam's day and and the generations that followed. So we have to distinguish between the legal definition of marriage and marriage in God's exactly. eyes. And Tom just described marriage in, in God's eyes. But we have, we also have, have a, a, a government that we are, like we were just talking about, we are supposed mm-hmm. to submit to that authority. And so then the question is, well, what happens when they redefine or do things in ways that are contrary to God's ways? And again, Tom, you were just describing it. I think we stand up and say, you know, what you are doing is wrong. Um, and I think this is one of the things that the sh- church should get easily, and that is God made man and a woman and brought them together, and the two will become one flesh. That is God's yeah. design. You know, sometimes we get this mm-hmm. idea that Christians should just uh, kind of stay in their four walls and and wait for the second coming, and it's easy to live that way. The danger mm-hmm. with that, though, is that we negate what Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on mm-hmm. earth as it is in heaven. How's it going to be happen on earth? You know, when when I go to my church and we need money for a project, we pray about it, we share it with people. We don't expect it to fall out of the sky. I've never had a dollar drop out of the sky on our church from the heavens. It comes through people who hear the Lord's voice, hear his calling, and do it. It's the same way here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And, I, you know, what comes to my mind is a little bit, you know, different of an angle. And you look at, you know, the reason why people long for um, a type of you know, relationship that, you know, they would define as being married and that type of mutual commitment and love, intimacy with one another. I mean, uh, for that, the, underneath all of that, it, it does point us back to the fact that we were made and created in the image of God and we innately desire those things. We're wired. It's part of what it means to be human. But ever since the fall, we've constantly wanted the good things that God desires to give to us, but we want them in, in our way and in our timing and by our own definition. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I think that, um, yeah, there is the legality of it. And, you know, there's different ways to that's been expressed and that's been constructed over different governments and cultures throughout the history of time. But I think, again, what I when I, you know, sit in front of a, a, a engaged couple and doing premarital counseling, one of the things that we always talk about is how marriage is a picture of something greater than just two human beings uh, joining together and their expression of love for one another. Um, It it includes that, but it's not limited to that. The marriage, I mean, ultimately, is not about a contract that you sign. It's about about a covenant that's meant to display um, our relationship uh, between Jesus, the bride, and the bridegroom, the church. And so, um, and I and I think to the degree in which we we get away further and further from that ideal, um, we'll break down in in the purpose of that marriage. You know, so for example, I would say it's easy it's easy to get married. Anyone can do that, but it is extremely difficult to have a lifetime commitment characterized by love, unity, and enduring faithfulness. And in fact, 
um, that that's something that's supernatural, that we cannot love one another the way that God intended us to, apart from the help and enablement of the Holy Spirit. And and can so, I just read from yeah. Ephesians 5, because you mentioned it, it, it you the, the higher meaning. It says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. We have mm-hmm. become one with Christ, and that's the mm-hmm. higher thing that, that 007 just described there. Mm-hmm. A bunch of great answers. Yeah. The power panel is off to a really good start and we're going to take your questions, so all you have to do is text them over, 877-933-2484. I know there's a question you've been uh, thinking about asking, and now is the time to do it. 877-933-2484. We'll be right back. My power panel today is Jeff Verdorn, Tom Parrish, Justin Jepson. Be right back. listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. Welcome to the show. It is Guy Talk or Guys Who Talk, and they do a great job. Send me the questions, 877-933-2484. Here's a question. The next one in line is, why did Jesus speak in parables? Hmm. Well, you know, from, from very the very beginning of the Gospels to the very end of the Gospels, actually right before the cross, Jesus speaks in many parables. I can't remember the exact count. I think it's 80-some-odd parables in the in the Gospels. But uh, Jesus spoke all these things, according to Matthew 13, in parables. He did not say any to the, anything to them without using parables. But why? Well, his disciples actually asked him this very question in Matthew 13. They said, then the disciples came to him and said, why do you speak in parables? Yep. And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has will be given more, and that he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. So I think the message is that if you are not seeking God, you're not going to understand the message. But if you are, the message will become clear to you. In fact, Paul says this basically in in Corinthians where he says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. They don't want to believe. And so I think if you're seeking him, you will understand, you will see, you will seek him, and you will find him when you seek him with all of your heart, Scripture proclaims. So uh, I think that the message uh, just was falling on deaf ears, and that's kind of why he spoke in these parables. Mark chapter 4, verse 10, 11 says the same thing. Same Mm -hmm. thing you just read in Matthew. And I think it comes down to this. I've been not only a pastor, but done a lot of professional photography in my life. Used a lot of filters. There are filters that will actually screen out things that you can see when you look through the lens. Things will actually disappear or blend in to the point you can't see them. Hmm. I think parables are a lot like filters in the sense that, and I think you're hitting the nail on the head, Jeff, that if you don't have a receptive heart, if you're not really seeking for the truth, if you're not really being honest, the parable is a nice story that doesn't really make any sense that you can do something with. But when you are open to the Lord Jesus and really open to what he's doing, the parables clear up. They begin to make sense. And and I know so many parables over the years as I have studied the word and grown in it. Uh, there are many times that I've said, I've read that parable 50 times. 
I really get it this time. This really makes sense to me on how I am to live this out with other Christians or how I'm supposed to treat unbelievers. Uh, so, yes, it's a filtering process, and it's a powerful tool, and the way it works in us is a believing heart. Yeah, I've also, you know, the teaching in parables, too, is a common, you know, convention of, of Jewish rabbis in Jesus' day. So it makes sense, you know, that he would he would employ that same, you know, strategy and not how he would teach and tell stories and, you know, make them really the kingdom of God relatable to his audience. But, you know, I've also, um, you know, parables also I've heard they function uh, both like a window and like a mirror. They function like a window in that it's meant to frame out uh, an understanding, an aspect that you can see the kingdom of God, you know, so so many of his parables in Matthew 13, what should we compare the kingdom of heaven? The kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like. And so it's to help us see the kingdom more clearly, but it also functions like a mirror in that it's help, it's helping us to see ourselves in relationship to the kingdom, but more so the king of the kingdom, Jesus. And ultimately is meant to bring a, a sense of conviction of, you know, again, how Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. If his kingdom is going to come, then every other kingdom must go, which includes mm-hmm. our own. And so um, I think that those parables often function that way for Jesus's original audience. But to us reading them 2,000 years later, um, it's been really helpful even applicationally uh, to interpret that, it that way. Justin, if I had my camera here, I'd take a picture of that. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. it's, a, it's a great comment, Justin. <laughs> Yeah, I think the the context is key. I think the the fact that Jesus, I think we forget this by the way, that Jesus when he is speaking came as one under the law, is teaching to those under the law. He came to Israel, those who are his own, the, though his own did not receive him. Um so we need to understand them in that light. As such, I think most of the parables actually have salvation at the core of their meaning. But we have to remember each parable has a spiritual truth that it's trying to to uh, to communicate, and uh, most of the time, like I said, I think it has to do with with salvation. I think one of the issues we get into is we try to extend the metaphor, extend the parable too far, or we mix our metaphors, or we try we miss the main point, which the message is trying to say. And we focus on some of the ancillary points that we think it's trying to make. So I, I think generally, parables have one core spiritual truth that they're trying to communicate in the form of a extended metaphor, which is a, a parable. Nicely done. All right, let me move on to the next question. Can, uh, let's see, were, were Adam and Eve the only ones in the Garden of Eden? And if so, who did their son Cain marry? Tom Parrish? That's, uh, Ken Ham talked about that when I was down um, with the Ark. And uh, he, I think it's in, ooh, boy, off the top of my head, I think it's in Genesis five or whatever, but it talks about he went out and knew his wife, and there's there obviously you know they lived a long time I mean these people lived you know seven eight nine hundred years, so this could have been who knows this could have been uh additional children of Adam and Eve who became and they grew and they got married or had families i don't know, but uh if you want to really look deeply into it, go online and ask Ken Ham he's got some <laughs> great answers to this. You know, if, if Adam and Eve are the first man and the first woman on the face of the earth, as Scripture describes in the Garden of Eden, then every single person must be a descendant of Adam and Eve. And therefore, you know, I think there's nobody else to choose from to have uh, to marry and therefore have children from. And you say, well, wait a minute, that means that 
that siblings were married and had children? And I say, yes, I think that is the assumption that we can make. And you say, well, doesn't that raise issues? And today it does raise issues. In fact, the law given to mankind at the at, at, at Mount Sinai, about 1400 B.C., uh, also says that you should not marry close relatives. So there's issues. But I think there's something. God made Adam and Eve with perfect DNA. They were the perfect creation of God. And I think their children, I don't think there were issues with close relatives marrying each other back then. Now we, however, are copies of copies of copies of copies. And we know that Therefore, we are degrading. I don't think man is evolving up like a lot of people think. I think we are actually <laughs> degrading down. <laughs> and uh, and I think it's because of this idea that we are copies of copies of copies. So now there's issues. Then I don't think there was issues. So I think there those were the only people available at the time. Yeah, it's certainly a mystery. And I think uh, uh, right now I'm teaching an Old Testament survey class and a group of 50 students. And I love the questions that, that are brought up in that class. And, you know, one of them was, where, where did all these other people come from? <laughs> you know, and to Jeff's point, I mean, they had to have come from Adam and Eve. And of course, as, you know, the first that command to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth, you know, certainly there was a genetic purity um, uh you know, before and even immediately after the fall that, um, you know, existed then that does not now, because one of the trajectories of revelation of, of Genesis is to explain uh, the degenerative effects of sin and how that continues to be multiplied um, and the ramifications of the fall. And so, um, so yeah, to that point, I think it's, it's, there were other humans at that point populating the world because Adam and Eve were being faithful to that to that command to that directive that, that god had given to them mm-hmm. now it's probably as good as time as any to tell my power panel that we're uh, not on next week just so you know i'll let you know because uh, oh. starting next week is our fall fundraiser mm. and we're going to celebrate what god is doing um in not only the lives of every listener but people who are listening around the world so during our fall fundraiser mm-hmm. which starts uh, this coming monday you're going to hear amazing stories of lives that have been changed and you can also uh, get involved in the Ministry of Faith Radio, which we are very excited about. And it makes us very happy that you support us, care about us, and love us, because we love you. So oh. you can uh, make a gift anytime if you want to be the first person on your block to do that. You can go to MyFaithRadio.com. All right, we're going to take a little break, but we've got lots of time for your questions. Send them over via text, 877-933-2484. Again, that's 877 Eight, four, and we'll be right back with the Power Panel. Jeff Ferdorn, Tom Parrish, Justin Jepson. Be right back. Hi, Faith Radio family. It's Bill Arnold from the Afternoons with Bill Arnold show. Boy, the creativity never ends, does it? So here you are listening to a podcast, which makes me very happy. So thank you for doing that. And thank you for being interested in Faith Radio and the podcast. Now, because the podcasts are made available because of listener support, I would like to ask you kindly and prayerfully to consider supporting the show and Faith Radio. So you can become a Afternoons with Bill Arnold supporter by doing that at MyFaith 
radio.com. So thank you for listening to the show. And your financial support makes podcasts like mine possible and helps tell more people around the world about Jesus through Faith Radio app. Support the show now, please, at MyFaithRadio.com. You are listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold, Faith, Hope, and Clarity, in a special repeat performance. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. Yeah. What's for dinner? Hey. It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Welcome to the show. So glad uh, that you are joining us today. It's Guy Talk, or Guys Who Talk. They do always do a great job. Jeff Redorn, Tom Parrish, and Justin Jepson is the power panel today. So any question you have for us, we will do our very best to respond. And some great questions coming in. Last half hour, we chatted about marriage and and what makes a covenantal marriage. And then a follow-up question came in. Since we're talking about marriage, my nephew recently married a man, and I felt horrible because none of my family would be in in attendance because of our beliefs. My heart broke for him knowing he'd be all alone on that day. Was I wrong for attending? By the way, he knows my stance on same-sex marriage. Well, we actually talked about this a few weeks ago, and I think it was a really neat Mm -hmm. conversation um, you know, I think the simple answer is we need to love people uh, while still hating sin. Um, so it, it, we don't want to ever approve of what God says is sin. Um, so if he understands and knows your stance, um, I think that's important. But then I also think supporting him and loving him uh, is also important. Um, we actually ended with a, a story from Larry over here, I think, um, that basically saying uh, that uh, they wrote your relative a note. Do you want to out- outline that story? Because the same thing happened to me the next week after you told this story on air. And this really? is Rosie, by the way, but we have to call her Larry on Guy Talk. <laughs> Do I have to make my voice <laughs> No, no, no just, okay, you, okay, use okay. your regular voice, Larry. No, it wasn't. Uh, I didn't write a note. I met with the bride ahead of time and just said, I want to support you. And she understood my position already and said, I will not be in attendance for the ceremony, I am going to come to the reception to support you. And that was the balance we found. And she was very appreciative of that. So I got an email from a guy that day that we did that a few weeks back. And he said, what should I do? And I said, I kind of outlined what we had talked about on air. And I said, you need to go listen to this show. He did. And I suggested that we err on the side of loving the person. And he wrote the person, expressed his, uh, uh, you know, understanding what marriage is, but also said, we love you and we're here for you and whatever. He, I just had lunch with him a couple of weeks ago. He got a note from this couple basically saying, we really appreciate, we understand your stance. We love the way you handled this and, you know, we love you back. And it was mm, for him, it was, they were struggling with what to do, but that was the right thing to him for him to do. You know, it's interesting. Jesus showed up and had dinner with tax collectors, sinners, and prostitutes. Mm-hmm. You don't hear any qualification before that saying, hey, I really don't think I can do this because of your lifestyles. His presence made the difference. And I think oftentimes we don't realize as Christians that our presence makes a difference in these situations. Because if we're Christians, and it's good, what Rosie did, I would affirm. And I've told other people to do mm-hmm. that. But you can you can state how you feel or people know how you feel and still be there 
and represent the Lord Jesus Christ. And heaven only knows what will happen as a result. I think the devil wants us to stay away from everything like that. So there's no influence of Jesus whatsoever. When I think many times we need to be there to speak up. And oftentimes when I get caught in these situations and I get a lot of questions as pastors, uh, when I go to things, uh, it is family members who ask me the questions, not the, the bride and the groom. It's family members. Well, what do you think, pastor? Well, now that they've asked me, I'm going to tell them. And I get that opportunity to say, this is what Jesus intended. This is not what is always going on. Justin? Well, I had to un- unmute myself. <laughs> yeah, that would be helpful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. trying to uh, mute my background noise here. No um, problem, brother. So, yeah, I know this is this is a very tricky question. There's a lot of layers and nuances to it. I, I guess, you know, and we can keep going further down it. But for me personally, I mean, I, I don't think... I don't think there's any one right action here in terms of you decide your convictions to attend versus not attend. I don't think someone's going to be unfaithful to the Lord or they're going to degrade their witness if they do attend. But part of that is is having a close enough relationship. If you have a close enough relationship, let's just say to a same-sex couple that's getting married and you're invited to the wedding, there is an open door of opportunity for you um, to posture grace and truth and hold that tension between with love and be honest about how you feel about that relationship and marriage, but yet still be present in their, their lives um, rather than to vacate the situation. And so for for me personally, I've made a distinction between attending a wedding versus officiating a wedding. Hmm. Right. And and to be, to be consistent with it, you know, I would not officiate a wedding between the same sex couple Right. In the same way that I've actually had to have a conversation with an engaged couple that was living together that professed to be Christians that were not willing to make some changes, and I re- and I said I would not be willing to officiate their wedding because dealing with sin, God's not making a distinction between heterosexual sin or homosexual sin um, in terms of sexual immorality, and so uh, so for me. Um, but yet I would have attended the wedding if they would invite, but they didn't invite me after I said I wouldn't marry them, so that didn't work out. <laughs> But it did have, it afforded a, a great conversation as well. And so, um, yeah, so I think for this listener in particular, if, if you attended, I don't think you need to feel a, a deep sense of guilt about that, but also use that as an opportunity that the fact that you did attend and that you're a part of this, these people's lives, and that can be a witness um, uh, and, and to reflect the, the salt and light of, of the kingdom in their lives. I think the struggle is as Christians, how do we stand for the truth but not burn bridges with people? Mm-hmm. Because there are many times people will get into these situations, will we'll get into a same-sex uh, marriage, will go through transgenderism, and then later on they say, what did I do? Why did I do this? Who are they going to turn to? Well, if they turn to their, their friends who have the same lifestyle or beliefs, they're not going to get any help. They need to know they can cross a, come across that bridge to people who love them, and we'll tell them the truth and what Jesus would say. And so it's keeping that balance that's always, I think, so critical, and I wish we could do more of that. Mm-hmm. You know, you both brought up the distinction between loving the person and versus approving of the action. And, you know, God says that he demonstrated his love for the world in this, Paul says, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So he understood that we were sinners when he sent Christ in his love 
to die for us. He never approved of that sin. His love was not conditional on his either approving or not approving of what we do or how we act or so on. He loved us and gave himself up for us. So we don't need to approve. And that's the line. I totally agree with you guys. That's the line that we shouldn't cross as Christians of approving of something, putting a stamp of seal on it, like like conducting the marriage. Uh, but we can still love the person. And and I think you're right, Justin. Uh, you know, for some, that means you can go to the wedding. For other Christians, they still may not feel comfortable doing that, so so don't. And, and you need to pray about it and decide for yourself what to do, but love them through it all. Mm-hmm. All right, here's a question. Um, got a nice couple of nice comments on things we've already discussed. Uh well, a listener said their 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 parables don't assume they're allegories. This doesn't mean that sometimes oil is simply oil and leaven is simply leaven. Mm-hmm. We had that discussion with Dr. Mark Muska yesterday, so that was good. Um, although occasionally they can be allegorical, so interesting. All right, First Corinthians chapter one verse twenty five. It says, "Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men." What does it mean to say that God has weakness? What was the weakness Paul was talking about? Speaking of metaphors. It's interesting because, yeah, you do have a metaphor here. The Bible is very insistent all the way through. There is no flaw in our God. There is no weakness in our God. There is no ambiguity in our God. Uh, And Jesus is that total reflection of God come among us uh, who lived that perfect life and never sinned. Now, taking that into account, this is the contrast the contrast is, no matter how hard we try, you know, our best efforts are still going to fall short. If the Lord had weaknesses, we would still be far, far short because we are not God. But it's not saying he does have those. It's simply making a contrast between the two. And the point is that we can trust the Lord and what he says in his word because he's always telling us the truth. You know, there's there's several places like this where it says, for example, in Genesis, it says on the seventh day, God rested like, you know, he was tired mm-hmm. or something. And I've actually heard people describe it as that. God is omnipotent. He doesn't get tired. He's he's not weak. He's never weak. He never doubts himself. He never he never lies. He never. I mean, these are his characteris- characteristics. So uh, he, he did not get weak. This is a metaphor that he's using. Um and and he didn't get tired. He he doesn't get weak. Um, you know, it's it's kind of like when it says Jacob he loved and Esau he hated. Uh, once again, this is an expression. He didn't hate Esau. He doesn't hate anybody. Um, he chose Jacob to be the father of the nation of Israel and not Esau. So in comparison and contrast, it uses this language of love and hate, which I actually understand was actually a common expression in the day. So. Well, mm-hmm. if you're mm-hmm. going to follow me, you got to hate your mother and father. Yeah, you know, for that for similar. Well. Yeah, for right. strong. Right. right. Yeah, boy, good yeah. comment, Bill. I think another part of this too, when you look at the context um, here, and just a couple of verses before 25, Paul talking about, "Well, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles." So that idea of the foolishness of God and the weakness of God, um, even though that sounds like a you know, it's, uh, there's an irony there. It sounds contradictory, but you think about God become man in Christ. The way of salvation, uh, the way to glory, was paved through suffering. I mean, that seems foolish, right? Jesus became weak. He was. He suffered. He was a man of trial. You know, a man of trials, acquainted with grief. 
Um, and so that idea of Christ became weak, Christ became, in, the, in his way of saving the world, seemed foolish in the eyes of the world. But I think part of what Paul is saying here is that, yeah, the, the foolish way of God, so to speak, is wiser, and the weakness of God in terms of in Christ is actually stronger than anything any person or any man could do. And so I think in a sense there, he's, he's talking about how foolishness and wisdom are, are kind of are juxtaposed uh, in Christ as, uh, uh, in comparison to the perspective of the world, if that makes sense. Well, you know, it's interesting. I had an older pastor when I was a young pastor, great evangelical guy, led a lot of people to the Lord, discipled a lot of people. He said, Tom, when you preach, when you teach, uh, don't underestimate the the ability of people, but also understand that not everybody's going to be at the same wavelength when you're in a class or you're in a, a sermon. He said, preach as though they were third graders. And he said, make the stories understandable. Make them applicable to their situation. And the more I began to think about that, I began to think, you know, that makes an awful lot of sense. Not that I'm going to preach down to people. That's not what that is at all. But can I make what I'm saying understandable so that even a third grader could pick it up? And sometimes this language in the scripture is a lot like that. And uh, next year, I hope to get into fourth grade. (laughs) All right, gentlemen, here's another interesting question. Uh, Someone asked me in the thousand-year millennial reign, does everyone stay alive through that time? There's actually an interesting passage, and I'd have to search for it here, where it says, if a man dies before a hundred, he'll be considered a curse. And so the assumption is, is that people will die. Now, remember, at the start of the millennial reign, there are only the righteous. Only the righteous will enter into the kingdom at the very beginning of the millennial reign. But people, as they always have done throughout history, tend to reproduce when they are together and they will have children and their children have children and so on and so forth. And so at the end, we know there is a great rebellion at the end of the thousand-year reign. And so even though only the righteous entered into the start of this earthly thousand-year kingdom, at the end, there are people who are unbelievers. And, and, and people have often asked when I teach this in my, my end times class, how in the world can people not believe in Christ when he's He's ruling the earth physically present on earth. And it's kind of like, well, how can people build a golden calf after they just saw God part the Red Sea and destroy Pharaoh's army? How can they not believe in Christ when they just saw him resurrected from the grave and conquered death? You know, Uh, these are great mysteries of why people reject what is clearly God's work and his his doing. That's Jeff Verdorn making all kinds of sense, uh, which is something he often does. We're going to take a little break. We come back. Lots more guide talk. Just so you know, send your questions over 877-933-2484. So glad to have Jeff Redorn, Tom Parrish, and Justin Jepson on board today. Be right back. listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. Welcome to the show. It's Guy Talker, Guys Who Talk. My power panel is Jeff Verdorn, Pastor Tom Parrish, Pastor Justin Jepson, a.k.a. 007, and always delighted to take your questions. So text them over 877 933 
877-933-2484 is the number, 877-933-2484. Here's a question. I've seen those who defend or rationalize abortion and will, will refer back to Old Testament verses where God had babies and others killed. How do I understand these verses as to defend God's word? I always like the way somebody can take the Bible and twist it to their point of view. And that's a lot of what we see in this kind of thing. What it comes down to is the Bible says this, the Lord is the author of life and death. He didn't give us that authority. He said, I have that authority. Back in the Old Testament, he was trying to, he was creating a people that were bringing the message ultimately, which would be Jesus. And he needed to cleanse areas of people with bad belief systems and horrible lifestyles. Yeah, it's hard to hear that. But the Lord has the right to do that. But it doesn't say that we automatically get the right then to choose that if we have a baby in our womb or, you know, or our girlfriend is now pregnant and uh, it's going to be hard on her because she won't be able to go to graduate school right away or it's going to cost me money because I'm the dad, that I can eliminate that baby based upon the Bible. No, I don't have that authority for life or death. And I'm not going to start exercising it on a child in the womb that has no say. And that's just absolutely a twisting of the Word of God. Mm-hmm. You know, God is a God of life. Um, he made life. He gives life. He gives eternal life to those who believe. And I think God is much more interested. It says in the Old Testament that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I think he's talking about eternal death, yeah. the second death, much more than he's talking about physical death, uh, that that people physically die is obviously an, an earthly tragedy. But what's even more of a tragedy is people who don't know the Lord, don't believe, and have a second death, and that is the eternal death. So, you know, it's tough when God says to, the, for example, Israel to go into the, to the promised land and not leave anybody, men, women, or children. And we know why he says that, by the way. It's because if you don't, your children will marry their children, and they will cause you to follow other gods. And that's exactly what happened. People forget that the people of Canaan had every opportunity to believe in the God of Israel, the God of creation. They had, in fact, God left them there for hundreds of years, hoping they would believe and be saved, but they didn't. So while physical death is a tragedy, I think the bigger tragedy in God's eyes is eternal death. Yeah, I mean, I agree with what's been shared, and I think that's a good point. That I mean, there's there's nothing in Scripture that could that justify um, the taking of a, of an unborn baby or a child. And and I think as hard as those passages are, one thing that is clear um, is that it happened under the divine directive of the Lord at a specific point in human history, in the way that He was relating to His chosen people, Israel, and uh, there. It's always mentioned that um, they were to be devoted to destruction, and the Hebrew construction of that is, is in light of this is this is an offering uh, unto the Lord. And to Jeff's point, yeah, they did have time to repent. I mean, you see little uh, snippets of that in the fact of you know Rahab and her family spared in Jericho uh, before they crossed. You know, and they said, "We've heard, we've heard about you. We know about Israel. We know your God and what He's done." And the fear of, of God that it, that it would spread across the land, but yet people still did not repent. And so mercy, um, God's a merciful judge. And, and even in his wrath, um, that is always just and always right, um, he is merciful as well. And so that, that is a twisting of Scripture that in no way can justify, um, I believe, that action of abortion. See, I don't think we understand what the nations around Israel was doing. They were into some pretty mm-hmm. perverse things. 
And I'm looking at uh, 1 Kings chapter 11 and and verse 7. This is the end of Solomon's life or toward the end. It's not a nice picture, unfortunately. And it says this, Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Amorites. Molech was the god of child sacrifice Mm -hmm. on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And he did these things for his foreign wives. For the wisest man in the world, he really got stupid at the end. (laughs) in doing these kind of things, and the Lord was totally opposed to that. He did not want children sacrificed. He did not want Molech to be honored because Molech didn't give life and only gave death. So somehow God gets a bad rep for judging people for, you know, what they've done and what they don't believe in, and yet the the nations that were judged get a complete pass for some of the activities they were doing, like child sacrifices. Mm-hmm. Nicely done, gentlemen. I will move on. Uh, You're listening to Guy Talk or Guys Who Talk. And for those who may be new to the program, we take questions and we try to do our very best to answer them. You can text them over to 877-933-2484. I hate to spring this on Justin right now because he probably can't stay, but we are doing an extended version of Guy Talk today, which means we will extend into the next half hour. Justin, I assume you're not available, but thank you for uh, being with us to this point. Always yeah, great, always yeah. great to have you with us. So uh, let me ask uh, you, gentlemen, a question about First Corinthians, and I'm in chapter eleven, verses two to uh, sixteen. It talks about the covering of head in the worship and all that. A man ought not to cover his head, since he's the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. You know. And the question that came out of this is, um, how are we to explain why some instructions apply today but not others? Justin, we respect you. We know you're leaving, so go ahead and answer that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. That is always a hard um, thing to discern between, you know, what is a cultural convention versus what is a universal principle, you know, and... I mean, I think that, that Paul was speaking to a specific church and specific context and culture um, in Corinth. And, uh, and and so I think that um, in here, I mean, again, it's, it's easy to pick and choose, but I think it's, it becomes more clear when you look at the, the variety, or sorry, the overall context of 1 Corinthians and some of the things that he references um, in terms of men and women and the way that they relate to one another. And so... Like, you know, for this specific, you know, uh, verse, Bill, you're talking to First Corinthians 11, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the shame as if her head were shaven. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so, um, you know, again, I, I think the, um, the, the one of the ways that we can do that is by understanding a good Bible background commentary and understanding some of the cultural conventions and the customs in that time um, can can help shed light on why Paul wrote what he wrote um, to this specific audience. And so, uh, and I think that will help uncover that Paul likely here was talking uh, about um, a specific cultural convention in terms of the way that men and women express their worship within the context of the gathered church and community. Um, and not, not necess- he's not tying it to creation. He's not tying it to um, other areas of Scripture. And we don't see this as something that, that is repeated as well. Um, and so I think that's also another thing to keep in mind, that 
What do we know that is a universal principle? Often those things are, are consistent themes throughout Paul's teaching, and they usually occur and come up more than once. So um, other guys can speak into that since we're out of time, but that, there's a just a kind of a brief commentary <laughs> on the difficulty and complexity of these types of passages. That's good. You know, if you go back to ancient Israel, first century, when the church was going out, once you got outside, outside of Israel, the surrounding people didn't worship the one true God. They were worshiping all kinds of stuff. And especially many of these temples use what we call, and forgive me, temple prostitutes. These were women who were well-adorned, and it was very attractive to men because you can only imagine what would happen in there. The bottom line is Paul is speaking to specific situations about this. And in that culture back then, you know, for a woman not to have her long hair as a covering outside of Israel or outside of the church, put her in the same category as the professional prostitutes and others. And we see here Paul trying to protect them. I don't think there's a restriction. I think that's why now you come to the 20, you know, 2022, we don't push this much in church because it's pretty much the reality of the world, but it's not connected, you know, directly with temple worship of prostitutes and things like that. It's Mm -hmm. a whole different thing altogether. So this doesn't have anything to do with wearing your baseball cap in church? Mm, I don't think so. I don't either. (laughs) All right, gentlemen, to this point, it's been a great uh, hour of guide talk. The power panel will want more free complimentary beverages, which I'm sure I will go... (laughs) I'm sure I will go get them reluctantly. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. We want to connect with you on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. We're creating encouraging posts every day to help you focus on the important things as you spend time on social media. From graphics that feature Bible verses and quotes from our hosts and show guests to articles about topics you are interested in to videos from our hosts. Search Faith Radio on social media sites to connect with us today. That's all the time we have. Have a great night, everyone. See you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.